You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Issue number 19 of research. Um, every release of research is in an event in and of itself, very anticipated. And uh, to do justice to the history of research, I think we take not just one event, probably a weekend of events to really talk about the scope of um, the influence of research. And, and Vale's connection to City Lights, which really spans many, many decades, it traverses the beat, the hippie, the, definitely the punk. Uh, Search and Destroy, uh, which we also edited, as many of you know, was produced here for City Lights. Um, and also an interest in the retro aesthetic uh, and surrealism uh, situations and much, much more. So along the way, they'll took about 100,000 photographs. And so tonight's book, Underground Living, uh, is essentially a kind of a sampler. It's a hologram uh, of this underground and its trajectory from San Francisco to London. Uh, so joining Vale tonight is Rudy Rucker, who's also no stranger to City Lights. Uh, he's a mathematician, computer scientist, science fiction author, and one of the founders of the cyberpunk literary movement, author of both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, best known for his award-winning novels in the Where to Trilogy. Uh, his uh, most recent book is Million Mile Road Trip. And you know, it's produced by Nightshade Books. They do these amazing editions. They're really quite gorgeous. And, I would say, you know, please check them out. Uh, as a bookseller, you know, whenever I see like a publisher here, no, no you wet, 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 not shade. Okay, <laughs> you're raising your hand. Uh, but uh, do check them out. Snap them up while you can. They're really, really quite wonderful. So, gentlemen, what departure plan? Can we take one of them downstairs when we leave? Yeah. So, just so that you know, so everything from here on, please pay veil for it. From underground living and all of Rudy's books, pay downstairs and they will be signing at the end of this event. So, welcome to City Lights once again. Thank you. Wow, thanks for that very generous introduction, Peter. And we have to credit Peter for making City Lights the real true spirit of rebellion and culture making. I think he's done more than anyone else in the, well, I better not say that, (laughs) the staff, but anyway. Um, without Peter, that we wouldn't be sitting here. There would be no event. So let's, you know, give credit where credit's due. And <laughs> and personally, I'm super grateful that Rudy Rucker, the the star, the cyberpunk god, and the <laughs> <laughs> condescended to write me a an introduction and even better, temporarily at least, show up in person with his beautiful wife, Sylvia. So, um, and, and you know, your son, of course, is, he's done a lot for the city already. So, let's see, where do we begin? Maybe we should start, okay, we're gonna, first of all, if it's okay with everyone, we're, we're gonna end with Rudy reading a 20-minute story that he really, is very enthusiastic about presenting and giving an audience to. And so, um, let's see. Maybe I'll say a little about coming to San Francisco and meeting Vale. We we moved here in 
1986, and uh, I remember seeing the, the research books, and I think Urban Primitives was out then, and maybe Pranks was out, or it came out the next year. And uh, they weren't like any books I'd ever seen before. They were sort of, had a handmade look to them, that sort of a do-it-yourself underground look. And such an uncensored quality. And uh, there's also always been a sort of Andy Warhol quality to Vale, in that this, this sort of willful blankness, this assumed seeming blankness, <laughs> that everything's great, everybody's nice, he loves everyone. And Andy was like that, and it's, it's good. It's just he's open, and, but the things that he's fascinated by are the things that most people don't want to look at or don't want to hear about, or if they see it, they say, well, maybe we could make money off this, but this is not really the right thing. And <laughs> he's made a career of, of showing us how cool this is. And this, uh, you said 100,000 photos, that's interesting. This is a, a really fascinating collection, Underground Living. It's sort of a, almost like an all-star thing, like a tarot deck of the, the powers of San Francisco. And it, it's a lot of fun to look through it. Um, how did you go about assembling the book, Vale? I didn't. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm a fan of, of having so very few associates in my life, but trying to have them like people I genuinely like and admire even. And my friend Andrew Bishop in the second row, he, arra he picked, arranged, and uh, laid out, I guess is the word, all the photos. And he, he was strictly edited my verbose captioning. And what else did he do? <laughs> Marion Wallace sitting over there, she gets credit for the cover and picking out the photos for them. So, <laughs> oh yeah, this this all happened because, God, two years ago, a fine fellow in this town, a gallerist named Stephen Wolf, had the idea of offering me a, a photo show in a, his gallery. In other words, a gallery show. And I, being kind of a little bit maybe too underground, I had never thought of such an idea <laughs> and so he came over and he went through just boxes and thousands of color slides remember them and um, he he assembled his own edit of a show and then I had a bunch of prints made uh -huh. and put them up and and that led to not two more photo shows two or three and um, I don't know is the rest history am I done for I hope not. <laughs> so you're basically the eye and the finger. Boy, I, I, <laughs> I think in the introduction I said I, these photos were all taken by an animal. Uh -huh. Me, me. I mean, I mean, it's not intellectual taking a picture. It's just like you yeah. do it, and you don't know why. Uh -huh. You just wanted to. Yeah. So I don't know. Is that is that art? <laughs> well, we're not here to d decide art, I guess, whether anything's art. Only history can judge. I mean, that's what we learned from Duchamp. He said, you know, it takes 35 years after you're dead for, you know, any, well, you, your, your ghost up in the Empyrean heavens to, um, you know, decide whether what you did was worthwhile, should be preserved. 
Um, oh, there's one seat in the front and two way over here. On the right here. Way over th oh, They're pretty prime seats right over there. <laughs> and so, yeah, Stephen Wolf and then, um, uh, you know, Meg Schiffler at SF Arts Commission Gallery gave me a show, but that was par partially abetted by Stephen Wolf. I wish he were here and then he could take his credits. And then... Mule Gallery gave me a show. They're only 50 feet from where I live, but super nice people. So, Somewhat by the way, anyone who wants to ever <laughs> ask anything from the audience, please do. We could do we that to keep it rolling. Somebody want to throw a question in? Yeah, I have a question. Oh. Uh, did you ever meet with resistance? trying to take pictures of some of these people, some of these famous characters? Did they protest? You were getting beat up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 I would never, I never thought, there's one seat right here, a good seat right up there. Um, I never thought of that question in my life. Did you ever... <laughs> Well, he huh. has a, a sort of vibe that Vale has this very non-threatening vibe, and again, uh -oh. always acts very enthused. You used to do a lot of shooting in the the Mabue Gardens back in the day at the the punk club there. That was, I think, where you got some of your start, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but although I had been taking pictures before too. then, yeah. yeah, I recruited Bruce Connor to. I bribed him. I gave him a press pass. Said, you know, if you if you take pictures and give them to me, because I had no money, you, you can get in free to all the punk shows, and also you would be part of the quote. I hate to say this in group, uh -huh. because otherwise, who's this old guy doing here, coming here with this scruffy down jacket? <laughs> and I remember. People hated the down jacket. I think that got destroyed real early. Was it Bruce's jacket? Yeah, in a cloud of feathers. I wish we had a video of that happening. People wa wanted to t take out that down jacket. They, pardon? Did he have a hat? God, I don't remember a hat on him, Jesus. But it was indoors, the Mabuhai. But they yeah. Had, uh, well, oh, it was two blocks. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Literally two blocks. And actually, in the super earliest days, City Lights here was sort of the hangout for a lot of the early punks because they wouldn't kick you out here. I mean, that you could s sit here all day and read. Yeah, but I, I like to pretend, at least, uh, maybe I'm self-deluding myself, that a lot of the first generation, i.e. the first two years of punks, actually read books. <laughs> and, uh, and, and quite a lot of them, especially Burroughs. And then I, I did my best to introduce everyone to J.G. Ballard. That's, that's one of my only contributions, I guess, to expanding, I don't know, everyone's cultural horizons. How about a, a few Burroughs stories? You have a lot of good Burroughs stories. 
Well, hmm. I remember when he came here, the first thing you did was take him to a shooting range. I mean, maybe not everybody knows that. Well, it's just, pardon? Oh, no, no. I'm, I was here. Hunter Thompson came here a little bit later in my publishing career. I started in June. My first issue came out in June 77, and you notice, if you look at it, it's published at City Lights Bookstore. And, um, but that took like about six months to do because I didn't know what I was doing. Having never, I really wish I'd gone to art school or something, have a little experience. And, uh, but I just, I start out knowing the principle that what you see is what you get. And, and the, and there's the word in Japanese for learning is the same word as copying or to copy. To learn is the same as to copy. So it's, it's a good way to start out doing anything by finding something you truly like and then just ripping it off. I mean, copying it, let's say, or, or what? No, appropriating it. That's a hip, hipster, academic, post-situationist word, and um, so you just and you know it's pretty well known. I, I just ripped off Andy Warhol's early interview magazine. I mean, ex when I say ripped off, I mean exactly. <laughs> I got the column width, the letting, <laughs> the uh, exact font. <laughs> I, well, you could do this because they. City, well, God, speaking of appropriation, I use City Lights' typewriter. They're $850 IBM Correcting Selectric 2. That's exact model typewriter. Oh, it's really good because you could, you could make corrections, you know, and um, what else? You could, um, yeah, yeah, you just, you just ripped it off and tried to make it look like Warhol's interview, but better, of course. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's what you did. Wait, there's, aren't there more chairs, or? Oh, oh, there's, well, there's one. Wow, asking, you shall receive. Is that from the Bible? I had a terrible fundamentalist upbringing, not that anyone cares about that, but... Well, I never I, hear anything about your childhood. But oh, good. I, I guess <laughs> this probably isn't going to be the time either. <laughs> he sort of, who knows where oh. he really came from. You know? Oh, there's, there's four little red stools. And they're, hey, they're even close. Good. Wow. You, you, get, you come here late, you get the best seats in the house. <laughs> Yes, please make your way up. Uh-oh, the other person left. Oh, well, we tried. And so, um, oh, thanks. Oh, yes. Okay, there's three more left. So, um, yeah, any, I, of course, feel that everyone should publish a zine, at least one, and that, indeed, it's a rite of passage. And into this society, you kind of find out the way society works. It helps. You learn <laughs> involuntarily about this terrible word that is so prevalent or predominant now, the single word marketing. <laughs> I mean, It's such a catch. I mean, I can, I can write a book. I learned how to design a book. I can Ooh. produce a book. 
but it's always the marketing thing that fucks us up, you know, <laughs> the artists and writers. Because there's something that tends never to be part of, very rarely. I mean, there, there are the, the guys who, who do have that marketing gene. Again, Andy is the, the sort of patron saint of that. But uh, with research, it wasn't really well known outside of San Francisco, at mm. least when I got here. But uh, it's it seems like it, it. I think urban primitives became quite well known nationally. I think that was what that's the biggest first hit, hit, wasn't it? Yeah. But that wasn't until that came out in January 1989, and I thought no one's gonna buy this. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Yeah, yeah I remember See. showing it to my relatives at Thanksgiving, and they were like, <laughs> "Oh God, you know these people." <laughs> <laughs> Sailor Sid. You know. Well. Maybe just New York and San Francisco. That's about it. That's yeah. about it. There's is a huge desert. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Who, what, who, what was the store in Minneapolis? One store. I don't know. I, I don't remember that one. Huh. Somebody told me they moved here because they saw your book. Somebody from the Midwest. They saw that. Oh God, Tower Records! This what's his name? Doug something. Big. Hey, wow! We've got genuinely literate historians there. <laughs> Doug, thanks to him, he got me all over the world, and I knew because people started writing me letters from all over the world. I got your search and destroy in Tower Records, Tokyo, or where London, wherever. That was. He did a lot. I guess he was an early, I hate to use this word, it's so trendy now, but he was definitely an early curator. <laughs> and, uh, and. Oh, right, the word of mouth. Yeah, yeah, you actually do depend on word of mouth. Everyone does. Yes. Yeah. Well, you still do, I think. It's weird. I think I've gotten two orders from Facebook, and they're both recently for the Henry Rollins um, value pack, whatever you want to call it. Yes. <laughs> but I, I know. It, it's terrible how it's colonized all of our brains, this marketing language, the, you know, invented in think tanks of ad agencies and whatever, branding agencies, that's a new word, branding. All these words, they, you know, you have to kind of survive despite their hegemony. How do you, how do you spell this damn word? Pronounce, hegemony? Hegemony? hegemony. 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 That rhymes with Gemini, right? Hegemony? hegemony? Yeah. Thank you. Monetize is another important Oh, God, another horrible word. Yeah, let, let's monetize. <laughs> God, I, I, I actually try that's, to. I mean, that's why I'm on Twitter. You know. Well, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm only on Twitter accidentally because. because we well, have to say like four interesting things, and then the fifth thing will be an ad for something of yours, and then you go back and do four things that are entertaining and philosophical, a koan, a beautiful photo. Then, by the way, I'm going to be at City Lights with Vale. <laughs> selling books 
Well, is that what we're doing? Uh, I thought we're, we're monetizing. For me, it was my chance to have a conversation with you uh-huh. and have it be recorded. Yes, well, that's, that's yeah. nice. This will be recorded. Well, I God, I've said this a thousand times. If it wasn't recorded, it didn't happen. And guess who said it? Come on, who said it? Andy? N- no, J.G. Ballard. Oh. I've, I've, I've failed in trying to bring Ballard to the masses or the elect or whatever we are. We're not the masses, we're the elect. Uh-huh. As, that's my fundamentalist the background. The elect comes from the Bible, you yeah. know, all that stuff. Well, the Presbyterians, there's the... What? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, let's not... Well, the Calvinism, that. there's the... It's prejudged. There's the preterite. Those are the people who are going to die and suffer. And the elect. And uh, Pynchon talks about that a lot in Gravity's Rainbow. Huh. I, I didn't read that. But Sorry. you are definitely among the elect, Vale. No, I don't think so. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the accidentals. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's all luck that we're all here. And seriously, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's every luck. And you don't so know why important. you did it. You don't know why you had to do it, but you did do it anyway. Why? No, no, I, I knew why. Okay, tell us. It's, it's got to be what, why, what, why every creative. God, I hate that word. It's another colonization brain word. Um, I think everyone wants to tell the truth because we're in just a, a swamp of lies or whatever you call it. Yes, yes. I mean, there's so much BS out there. It just makes you angry. I mean, it, well, it does, makes you not want to leave your home ever. Well, that's me. Don't imitate me, please. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, of course, emotionally, anger is a great motive to do anything. Whatever pisses you off, do a zine on it, please. Or at least take a picture, take some photos, do something, uh, quote, quote, creative, unquote. Well, it's true, yeah. It always seems to me on TV, the ads and the news are, they're, in a way, they're the same thing. Because they're, they're trying to get you to feel afraid and powerless and helpless. And then you should spend some money to buy something and get some kind of security and the shows too it's it's all the same stuff it's this machine for crushing you and getting money out of you well, i think ballard said there's no difference between the ads and the and the content i mean they're all selling you a quote every lifestyle in the world i hate to tell you is consumeristic mm-hmm. i mean you just consume different stuff you know if if you're one of the hipsters, or ah, I hate that word too. I hope I hope we aren't. There's none in this room, myself included. But um, but research just, somehow it wasn't it wasn't selling things because you didn't want the things in there. <laughs> I don't know what was it. It somehow was not a commercial feeling enterprise. Let's put it that way. Oh no, are you kidding? Well, especially not search and destroy. I lost money regularly with that. There's three seats in front, right there. Three stools here, if you'd like to come yeah. sit here. Um, you, know, you know, Ballard was really interested in surrealism since we're on the cusp of the surrealist program. Oh, yes. This is a really important kind of a folklore thing for you. Can you talk a little bit about, like, you know, you know, when you're spending time with him and how you, you know, kind of invoke surrealism and why it was important? Oh, yeah, we got to promote Peter's 
event, which I'm sure is very hard to to pull off and organize and get all these people to fly out here, and it's on zero budget and all that. But um, I I came across surrealism by luck or accident. I I was working at City Lights, where you could meet everybody that I wanted to meet at least, and and I started here in '68, and in '69. Philip Lamontia moved here, who I never heard of, and I met him. and And I have to. One of my side jobs is being an unpaid manager of an apartment building three blocks away, and um, I was the janitor for that. And I don't. Yeah, I don't think I got paid anything. Why was I doing that? <laughs> but anyway, um, there was an apartment right above me, available then. And so I got him the apartment. He lived up. He moved in upstairs. He didn't have any furniture, and he. But I didn't know. I never heard of him. But he was. He's really, maybe. He's up there with Ballard and Burroughs in terms of brain power. He had a seemed to have this photographic memory of everything he'd ever read. It was like scary, and and so I just was the acolyte, coming there. At, I don't know, nine o'clock at night and staying till the sun came through. And um, and it was so bad, I didn't have tape recorder then. It hadn't been, quite been invented. Otherwise, I would have some great, incredible tapes that, to share with the world. But uh, I mean, oh, wax cylinders. <laughs> But but anyway, Philip, it's Philip Lamonti, of course, that turned me on to surrealism. He he was he read at the first you know how reading and whatever that was fifty five or six, and he, uh, but he didn't read his own stuff. I think he read uh, stuff by John Hoffman, who he told me about, who was pretty interesting himself. Woo! I love this soundtrack music. Wow. Oh, it's the dragon, yeah. It's, or whatever it is. But anyway, so Philip, of course, he didn't call himself a beat. He called himself a surrealist. And, and I said, what's that? And so I, I think I'm still learning what it was. It, it's such an incredible movement. I mean, I even wrote a paper on it to give away, which I forgot to bring, yeah. called you know what's so great about surrealism question mark, <laughs> and um, the, I mean the it's basically I guess to sum it up, it w it was like philosophical art theory plus um, Freud, and, and I know Freud's way out of favor now, but. But he, he, at least as far as I know, he sort of invented the notion of the unconscious and the subconscious, and, and he wrote early about, you know, the importance of dreams. And, um, and so he kind of taught us all that, that there's like, I, I oversimplified it and said there's at least four entities within each body sitting here in this room. And um, and you, 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 your mind switches back and forth between your conscious self and, and then you space out and get some memory and that takes 
colonizes, there's that word again, your brain briefly. And, okay, there's three seats in front. There's three seats in front, please. Oh, hey, Alaric. <laughs> okay, now there's one seat in front. <laughs> and so I, I felt that surrealism just gave me the, the keys to your future, personally. You started to keep a dream notebook. You started to, instead of being scared by your dreams, you started writing them down and wondering, what the hell did that mean? Some of your dreams are a little frightening, I think. If you are truly, I hate to say, being honest with yourself, is that possible? I hope so. And um, and then also, you know, the the, the thing called automatic. There's one seat left. Please take it. Oh, oh okay, you're fine. <laughs> a brave, stalwart young man. And... Um, and um, I thought they sort of gave you the keys to creativity. I mean, all you do is like, okay, you got an essay you want to write? Well, uh, for whatever reason, well, you think about it like mad just before you go to sleep and you wake up and like a zombie, go to your laptop and start just writing any old thing that comes out without ana analysis, censorship, authoritarian, anything. And then you edit the next day. You never edit the same day. And I think that's the way to write. I think it's a lot easier than people think. But, you know, what do I know? Well, <laughs> automatic writing was the main, was the jumpstart, the main criticism of the surrealists. You know, people would always say, oh, surrealism is all about randomness, and yet... Mm, they don't say that. Oh, the, the desire, no, desire is very important. Well, you, your desires influence, you know, your what? There's a famous saying. Science fiction is a lot like surrealism, actually. To me, it's... William Gibson calls it street surrealism. Huh. So you're wow. taking, uh, taking these fantastic images and just putting them out there. But you don't just want it to be automatic. You, you want to craft it. I mean, you learn how to do it. and That's next you, day. Well, they just speaking on that in that book that I helped you with, Bill, the, the close book, J.G. Ballard. Ballard says that science fiction was a, an avenue for frustrated surrealists in the Anglophone world because hmm. the English and the Americans and Canadians and Aussies aren't as into surrealism as the French. And they never, it never got translated, all that great French stuff. That's why. So people with the surrealist instinct, in order to make money, had to write science fiction novels. So they would, they would come up with, okay, San Francisco in the 21st century, and there's these lizard beings walking around. That's a surreal image, but it's put in a pulp marketing format, so you could actually make a living creating surreal art by creating science fiction. Well, you know, it was wonderful. I mean, I mean commerce can be important to art because Ballard's first stories, he might not have ever become a writer if it weren't for the science fiction weeklies. I think that were published then, and they were like on the cheapest paper newsprint, and they were small. You know, it's a very odd, an odd history. Yeah. But I mean, that was fantastic. They take almost anything. I think you submitted, right, or did they? Oh, I've been able to get stories rejected at every stage of my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, they, I mean. 
those stories paid. I mean, those, those magazines paid. And it was a very quick entree, you know, to becoming a writer, of writing, we might say, improbable or unlikely speculative fiction writing. Well, I certainly think research has a, a very strong surreal feeling to it. I mean, like the Phoebe Glockner book, you know. Oh, Atrocity Exhibition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's. I'm glad he credited her, the Phoebe Gluckner work. Yeah. It's actually written by J.G. Ballard. But, you know, I'm, okay, memory lane. I think I, I met her, Phoebe, in the punk scene, when, which is, here's what the early punk scene was good for. It was so tiny and so out, full of outcasts that you could meet everybody in the scene, like, immediately, because there were only a handful of people in the room. Even the size of this crowd now—that's like the first, early, about the size of the earliest punk concerts at the Mabuhai. You could meet everyone in the room, and it wasn't hard. There weren't barriers put up. And I met her, and she was 16. Don't worry. <laughs> and that was 1978. And um, she showed me her notebook of drawing that said, um, I, "I mean, I really thought, oh no, a genius." And um, and so I I put her in in print as soon as I could, and then when a trusty exhibition came my way, like yes, you can print it, and Ballard said I'll even write a whole bunch of new writing for it. That was a big thrill, yeah. And because that was the book that turned me on to Ballard in 1973, you know, because I only. Turned on, was turned on because of Burroughs writing an introduction to it. Otherwise, I'd never have even to this day maybe even discovered Ballard. And um, so I just gave Phoebe a Xerox of the manuscript and said, do whatever you want. I mean, that's the best way, I think, to get work happening. You yeah, know, just, just trust people. It's gonna yeah, but whatever you got to be careful who you trust, though. Well, there not is just that. anyone. Yeah, no, no, yeah. But I like the surrealist principle that anything goes with anything. It's, I always do that. Like I used to have a zine that I ran called Flurb, and we it was science fiction, and we'd have you know about ten stories per issue, and I would just take all the favorite images or photos that I'd taken in the last six months and. Just every, just put three of them in every story, and not even think about it, and they always go together. They'd always go together. Yeah, I guess sense. they could. Yeah, everything goes with everything. I w- want, I want a Xerox of these. Oh, they're online. Uh, they're online. Flurb.net. Okay, you heard it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A mathematician and a surrealist creatively. Ever able to prove that theory that two plus two equals a fish? What? <laughs> I did write a story called Two Plus Two Equals Five with Terry Bisson. It was about two old men in a rest home. That's sort of where Terry and I are at these days. So, <laughs> hey, wait a minute. <laughs> One thing I wanted to say, Bill, I was flipping through the book earlier, a couple hours ago, and you know, you got amazing pi- pictures of everybody from all across the field. And somebody was talking about the Midwest earlier. I heard about your stuff uh, when I was about 15, but in the Midwest in Colorado, which is where I'm from, 
you're really only known as a chronicler of the music scene, you know, everything from punk to the industrial. And it's interesting coming from the Midwest where all the artists are segregated. There's experimental and underground filmmakers, performance artists, and so on, but they don't go to each other's shows. Nobody gives a shit. If you're not in the, that clique, you're not a musician, and no one cares, and so on. And, you know, you something happened in New York and, uh, and in San Francisco where there was this incredible crossover. You know, like I work in the Beat Museum, as you know, and people come in, I start talking about Bruce Connor, and they say, who was Bruce Connor? And I'm like, I have no idea, because he wasn't one thing. He wasn't just an experimental filmmaker. He documented this stuff at the Mabuhai. He was an assemblage artist. And I've always been very fascinated by that. And you really, you know, you've got photos of, of Kuchar and Connor and uh, Mark Pauline and so on. And what was it like to have been in the place where Everybody practiced everything. Everybody did zines and was a musician and was. A, I mean, I'm kind of simplifying. It was the neighborhood. I mean, that was a scene. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I. It wasn't like we chose to go. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like that was really unique only to San Francisco and New York, and to an extent in LA. Well, we were the San Francisco and New York were snobby. Consumer parties. LA was more of the music, and the hipsters were there. Right. Yeah. And then you had the Midwest in between, which was nothing. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Chicago has a big. Chicago's got a If you were like in the scene back in, Bale and I were around the same time period. It's like New York and San Francisco were the arty people. Yeah. You know the poetry, the writing, and stuff. LA was definitely the music scene and something like that. It's not like the Midwest didn't exist, but they weren't the point of where people were going the most for talking about it. Right. You familiar right. with the Rosemonts, Franklin and uh, Penelope? Oh, yeah. I've been to their house and all that stuff forever. Actually, before punk. I, I went and made a f my own Super 8 feature film of, of the 1976 Surrealist International Surrealist Exposition. And they got artists from all over the world to submit, you know, pretty pretty ritzy names now, but back then no one had heard of them. And that was a rather huge show they put together again. The characteristic of undergrounds is you do things with no money. And um, without any money, they they curated that horrible word, uh, this um, amazing international art show, which you can see my 30-minute film if it ever gets put out somewhere that I made. And... Um,
I, I can't I can't answer that because it seemed like anyone could do anything when punk started out at least I, I mean oh yeah you want to make a film you want to have a photo shoot fine I mean you want to do performance art what's that fine whatever it is do it and you'd have an audience it's still that's true, the key thing really. about a an underground as it starts yeah. I, I think that a lot of the, you're right when it starts I think there's a lot of openness and people oh you're weird and I'm weird too and mm -hmm. I make movies well I, I'm in a band but we're really weird and, okay we can make that weirdness work but I think down the line, things get more ossified, a little bit more dogmatic, people get more tribal, you know. Well, money comes in, too, and that always changes everything, not always for the better. And uh, Before we get too far into this, the good old days thing, <laughs> I, I want to read you this story that they said I could read. So this will take about 20 minutes, and then we can do a few more questions and discussions. And... Uh, after I start reading this, you'll be able to sell what, see why I couldn't get it published. But it, it, is, uh, it is online. It's in my collection of stories called Complete Stories, Rudy Rucker. You can find it there. Uh, if you just Google Juicy Ghost, the story's called Juicy Ghost by Rudy Rucker. So Juicy Ghost, a mob of freels, says Lita. I feel safe for once. She makes a knowing mm-hmm sound with her gawky mouth pressed shut. She's not one to think about looks, lank-haired and fit, a fanatic. I'm a fanatic, too. We're feral freaks, free for real. Is Lita my girlfriend? No, I've never had a girlfriend or a boyfriend. I don't get that close to people. My parents and brother and sister died when I was eight. A shootout at our house. I don't talk about it. It's 9 in the morning on January 20th, a cold blue sky day in Washington, D.C., inauguration day for Ross Treadle, that lying sack of shit who's acting as if he's been legitimately reelected. Treadle and his goons have stolen the presidency for the third time in a row, is what it is. They outmaneuvered the media, they purged the voter rolls, and supposedly there's an unswayable block of Treadlers a stubborn turd in the national punch bowl. Not that I ever see any treadlers. Admittedly, I live in Oakland, California. Not exactly treadle country, but I personally wonder if the man's so-called base is a scam, a figment, a fake news virus within the Internet's chips and wares. Doesn't matter now. Treadle's on his way out. I'm here to assassinate him. And Lita is my bodyguard. I'll die right when I kill Treadle. I'm trying not to care. I'm Curtis Winch, part of a four-person Freel cell. I'm a gene tweaker, a bioprogrammer, and we've got gung-ho Lita, our money guy Slammy, who might be an agent, and this skinny, twitchy web hacker who calls himself G. Willikers. G. spends all day with his head in the cloud. He's crafted me a special device that has my whole personality inside it. G. calls it a Psydot. We have our base in Oakland, near the port, in a cheap-ass beige, trashed, 1930s cottage amid pot-grow warehouses and poor people's squats. I implanted some special eggs in my flesh two weeks ago. Today they'll hatch and attack Treadle, and then the Secret Service will gun down my larvae-filled larvae remains. Upside. 
G will put a low-end chatbot version of my PsyDot online as an interactive Paul Revere-type inspiration, Curtis Winch, martyred hero of the new American Revolution. Tell us what it was like to take down Ross Treadle, the admiring users will say to my memorial chatbot, and thank you, Kurt, thank you. Too bad I won't be around to savor this. From what I've seen, dying is like a jump cut in a movie, except there's no film on the other side of the jump. While I'm still alive, I'm continually updating my PsyDot. The device itself is a wireless antenna and a brainwave transducer, a shiny piezoplastic disc the size of a freckle on the back of my neck, like a paste-on beauty mark, except it's smart and can crawl around a little. My PsyDot captures whatever I experience and stores it in the cloud. Works the other way, too. My PsyDot feeds me info, and better than that, it uses heavy cloud-based processing to munge my data stream, and if I ask, it'll suggest what I might do next. Right now, the PsyDot is showing me G willikers. G is excited, more than excited, messianic. You're immortal, G willikers is telling me. Not that I believe him. They're shining me on, so I'll do the hit. G giggles. He's not a normal person at all. With my latest upgrades, you can live inside your PsyDot as long as it's leached onto a person or an animal or even an insect. As long as you're leeching, you're a juicy ghost. My ultimate hack, Kurt. Another giggle. I'm God. Be quiet, G. The crowd around the Lincoln Memorial is beyond epic. Bigger than a three-day rock fest with free beer. Bigger than a pilgrimage to Mecca. Bigger than any protest DC has ever seen. More than two million of us. Freeled stream in via the Memorial Bridge, down Constitution and Independence Avenues, piling out of the metro stops, walking in along the side streets and the closed-down highways by the Potomac. Cops and soldiers stand by, but they're not trying to stop us. They're working people, too. Low-income city folks. By now, a lot of them hate treadle. Him getting to be president again is like some unacceptable bug in our political system, and the Freelds are here to fix it. Our crowd swirls around Stone Abe Lincoln on his stone chair in his stone temple. We mass along the reflecting pool as far as the Washington Monument, but not yet onto the mall. A belt of armed troops blocks us from getting all that close to the Capitol. My PsyDot is jacked into the media, and it shows me how the mall is blanketed with actual for real treadlers, deluded sold out, enthralled to an insane criminal, awaiting the dumb show of their hero's noon inauguration. What would it take to change their minds? We Freels are zealous and filled with end times fervor and a sense of apocalypse. We're raring for revolution. Ross Treadle's opponent, Suda Marique, is standing atop one of Lincoln's stone toes. She's shouting and laughing and chanting, wonderfully charismatic. Her voice is balm to my soul, and she's calming Lita, too. The whole reason we two didn't go straight to the Capitol steps is because we need to see Suda get her own inauguration, the real one. Suda Marique did, in fact, win the election, both the popular vote and the House of Electors, but somehow Treadle turned it all around, and his packed Supreme Court took a dive. Treadle says he'll charge Suda with treason once he's sworn in. He says he'll seek the death penalty. But the Freels are going to inaugurate Suda just the same. We have one supporter on the Supreme Court, and she's here to administrate the oath of office. 
She's 90 years old, our justice, in her black robe, and she's brought along Abe Lincoln's Bible. We fall silent, drinking it in. The presidential oath, short, pure, and real, Suda's clear voice above the breathless crowd. I'm absorbed in my sensations, the trees against the sky, the cold air in my lungs, the pain in my flesh, the scents of the bodies around me. We're real. This isn't a play. It's the inauguration of the next president of the United States. For a moment, the knot of fear in my chest is gone. This is going to work. Our country's going to be free. We cheer ourselves hoarse. But hatch time is near. Lee did not need to haul steps to the Capitol steps, so I'll be close enough to terminate Treadle. And everyone else wants to head that way, too. The crowd rolls like toward the mall like lava, but there's the matter of those armed troops at the Washington Monument. They're in tight formation. Let's skirt around them, I suggest to Lita. The side streets are blocked by troops as well. We're like a school of fish swimming into a net, which is the U-shaped cordon of soldiers. They have batons, shock sticks, water cannons, tear gas, and rifles with bayonets. Behind them are trucks, armored Humvees, and even some tanks. At this point, Lita and I are near the troops along the right edge of the crowd. Armed men and women, all colors, Lita begins pitching our case. Suda Marique is our president, she calls, sweetening our voice. We just inaugurated her. Did you hear the cheers? Move along, mutters a woman soldier, not meeting our eyes. We're your friends, I put in, not Treadle. He's ripping you off. He hates us all. Behind me, the crowd of Freelts is chanting, We're you. You're us. Be free. Be free, echoes Lita, reaching out to touch the woman soldier's shoulder. Put down the gun. Let's do it, says the soldier at her side. He throws his bayonet-tipped rifle to the earth. Yeah, that gun's too heavy. The woman does the same, and so does the guy next to her, and the woman next to him drops her gun, too. It's like a zipper coming undone. A whole row of the soldiers is defecting, going renegade. Treadle will call us traitors. A few soldiers stand firm. They spray water cannons, which knocks down fields and muddies the ground. A handful of tear gas shells explode. Some hotheads fire their rifles into the air, but the flurry damps down. The soldiers aren't into it. They don't want to kill us. We're people like them. This stage of the revolution is a gimme. Hundreds of thousands of us chant as one. We're you, you're us, be free. The soldiers whoop and laugh, grab-assing like they're off-duty. Some fields try and tip over a truck, but it's too heavy. One of the soldiers, some wild hillbilly from Kentucky, he breaks out a crate of magnesium flares. He and his buddies go around prying open the caps on the gas tanks and shoving in flares. Low thuds as the gas tanks explode, one after the other. The rising plumes of smoke are totems of freedom. We cheer our incoming president, Suda, Suda, Suda. A pyramid of Freels holds the small woman high in the air. She's waving and smiling. She's the one who won. She's ours. In my head, my side-out shows me the news commentators going ape. Treadle's faked election, political U-turn, people's revolution, President Marique. Treadle's strategists strike back. Two banana-shaped gunship choppers converge on the Washington Monument, circling like vengeful furies. Men with massive machine guns stand in the big doors. They lay down withering fusillades, shooting at will into our crowd. The gunships are painted with Treadle's personalized presidential seal. The pilots and crews are from the chief's palace guard. 
dead-enders, pardoned from death row, recruited from the narco gangs, imported from the Russian mafia. People are dying on every side. It's insane. Next to me, a man's head explodes like a pumpkin. Am I next? Asymmetric attack on unarmed demonstrators, mutters Lita. Stop screaming, Kurt. Use your Psydot. Good idea. My Psydot is overlaying my visual field with images of the bullet's paths, a hard rain. Simultaneously, the Psydot is computing our safest way forward, showing me the glowing, shifting path on the ground. I take Lita's hand and lead her. We come to a cluster of renegade soldiers who've salvaged a rocket bazooka from a charred tank. A dark, intense sergeant raises the tube to her soldier. My psydot brings the nearest chopper's path into focus. I see the dirty bird's past trajectory as an orange tangle, and I'm seeing its dotted line future path too. As usual, my psydot is using cloud crunch to estimate what's next. There, I advise the woman soldier, pointing. Aim there. Whoosh! And hell yeah! Our canny missile twists through the air like a live thing, homing in on Treadle's hired killer's fatoom. The chopper explodes like a bomb. Shards of metal pinwheel as if from an airborne grenade. The blazing craft hits the ground with a broken thud I can feel in my feet. The second chopper flees, racketing into a wide loop above the Potomac. That there was my vote, whoops the rocketeer woman, pumping the bazooka in the air. For President Suda, I feel high. Seeing that chopper go down is like winning a round in a video game. But this game has a ticking clock. My parasites twist in my flesh, ever closer to my skin. I need to be at the other end of the mall when Treadle mounts his rostrum. The blockade of troops has thinned, and many of the freels fled back toward the river. Those who remain are tending to the casualties on the ground, the gravely wounded amid the dead. Fire trucks and wailing ambulances arrive. Lita and I hurry on and filter through the treadle base. They're striving to maintain an air of festivity, even after the rush of Freels, the troops' desertions, the massacre, and the downing of, chopper, of the chopper. Even now, bundled against the cold, they've laid out their sadly celebratory picnics, doing their best to ignore the bitter and battered Freels. They wave their treadle signs. They draw their little groups into tighter knots. Lita's good at crowds. She eels forward through the human mass, finding the moot seams, working her way up the mall. I follow in her wake. Soon we're within 30 yards of the Capitol steps. The dignitaries are still there. The charade is still on. I feel that the Secret Service agents are watching me. Treadle is about to appear. I bet dying is easier than you expect, Lita whispers to me. That's her idea of encouragement. A wave of dizziness passes over me, as if I'm seeing the world through thick glass. Those things in my flesh, they're leaking chemicals into my system. Steroids, delirians, psychotomimetics. What are we doing, I moan? Why? You'll be a hero, Lita murders, iron in her, murmurs, iron in her voice. Be glad. She leans even closer. Her whisper is thunderous in my ear. The secret, secret service knows. Mm-hmm. She nods as if we're discussing personal gossip. Her bony forehead bumps mine. They hate Treadle, too. It's all set. They're actually paying us. Slammy set it up. And I'm your patsy? <laughs> you remember that word? The, the fall guy? What if I change my mind? 
Don't fuss, says Lita. She rolls her eyes toward the strangers pressed around us. To make it all the creepier, she's wearing a prim, plastered-on smile. Her voice is very low. Be a good boy or they'll shoot you early. And then Treadle lives. We can't have that, hmm? My Psydot is jabbering advice I can't understand. Mad Jenny G- Skinny G. Willikers is in my head, too. As usual, he's unable to say three sentences without bursting into giggles. I hate him, and I hate Lita, and I hate my Psydot. Fresh insect hormones rush through me. My disorientation grows. The critters inside me are splitting out of their pupas and preparing to take wing. Sixteen of them. Treadle takes his oath. It's like, ha-ha, I'm president again, so fuck you. And then he's into his inauguration speech, in full throat, hitting his stride, spewing lies and fear and hate. Well, nudges Lita, it is a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done, I intone, quoting Dickens. I know I'm going to kill Treadle, but I'm trying to rise above the seamy details of our conspiracy. It is a far, far better rest I go to than I've ever known. You got that right. Weird how my whole life has led up to this point. There's this thing about time, I tell Lita. You think something will never happen, and then it happens, and then it's over. I pause and peek inside my shirt. Bumps and welts shift beneath my skin. Trigger them now, hisses Lita. Woa interrupts a treadler at my side, a mild-eyed old man with his leathery, white-haired wife. He's staring at a wriggly bump on my neck. Are you okay? Do you need help? Allergy, I wheeze. Overheated. It'll work out, pretty. I'm interrupted by a shrieking clatter. It's that second shopper attacking the Freelds and renegades and emergency medical techs who are helping the fallen around the Washington Monument. We all turn and stare as the whirly bird stitches gunfire into the ragged band. Done at my command, intones Treadle, raising his heavy arm to point. I keep my promises. He juts his chin. We're gunning for Suda Marique, a traitor. She meets justice today. Hoarse, savage cheering from the treadlers. Terrible to see Americans act this ugly. They're mirroring treadle. I have to kill him. But wait, wait, wait. I want to see how the scene at the monument plays out. The cheering dims, and I hear what I'm hoping for. Whoosh! Yes. The rebel soldiers have launched another knock- rocket. Fatoom! The blasted second chopper corkscrews along a weirdly purposeful arc, like it's remotely controlled. The Hulk smashes against the face of the Washington Monument. My Psydot feeds me close-up images. Bonus points, goes G. Willikers in my head. He giggles. Sick gamer that he is. Part of the plot, he continues. We pin this on treadle. G. hacked into the falling chopper's controls, wheels within wheels. The plot is a web around me. It's time to act, but I can't stop watching. Cracks branch across the great obelisk surface, running and forking. Bits of marble skitter down the pitiless slope. The monument's tip sways, vast and slow. People are scattering. The upper part of the great plinth moves irrevocably out of plumb. It tilts and gains speed. The bottom slow, the top fast, as in an optical illusion. The impact is a long explosion, followed by thin, high screams, a veil of dust, a beat of silence. I feel sick with guilt and weary of being human. Lita is screaming into my face, Do your job, goddamn you, now. Get treadle, I finally say. The trigger phase, I don't say it very loud, but it's loud enough to matter.
another page. Within my flesh, the hymenoptera here, ragged slits open on my neck, my chest, my belly, my arms. The pain is off the scale. I shed my coat and my shirt. The bloody, freshly fledged, bio-tweaked wasps emerge, all 16 of them. For a moment, they balance on their dainty, multi-jointed legs, hastily preening their antenna, unkinking their iridescent wings. They have handsome curved abdomens like motorcycle gas tanks. They feature prominent stingers and bejeweled zillion-lensed eyes. They're large and prematurely alert, preternaturally alert. Letha slithers off through the crowd. The cuts in my flesh pump bright blood. The treadlers around me point and shout. The wasps race up my torso, across my face, and onto the crown of my head, a wobbly mob. They rise in flight. My job is done. Or maybe not. Gee Willikers is hollering inside my head. Your Psydot, put it on a wasp. I can see an image of my Psydot on the back of my neck, and I note a single laggard wasp on my shoulder. My mind projects a target spot onto the wasp's wing. Though faint from loss of blood, I managed to get the Psydot off the back of my neck. It's easy. The smart Pisa plastic Psydot hops onto the tip of my finger. When I bring my hand near the wing of the target wasp, the Psydot springs into place. The wasp is pissed off. She stings my finger. Numbness flows up my arm and toward my heart. The wasp venom contains curare, you understand, plus conotoxin, a custom cocktail for treadle. My vision is dark. I'm an empty husk, a ruptured piñata, poisoned and bleeding. And if all this wasn't bad enough, there's the matter of the Secret Service. They're good shots. Yes, they might want treadle out, but right now they've got to do their thing for the sake of appearances, for an orderly transition. I go down in a hail of bullets. It fits. Last thought, I hope the wasps will sting treadle, and then I'm dead. At this point, my narrative has a glitch. Remember the jump cut thing I was talking about? Well, it turns out that for me, there is some film on the other side of the jump, Granted, the all-meat Curtis Winch is terminally inoperative, but I wait confused. I look down into myself. I've got my same old white light soul, my sense of me watching, me watching the world. I'm hallucinating a little bit. I feel like I'm in a huge, crumbling old Vic mansion with junk in the rooms and with paintings leaning on the walls and doors that don't properly close, the furniture of my mind. Somebody's in here with me. A jittery silhouette against the light. G. Willikers. You're a juicy ghost, Kurt. A G. Willikers signed up. Play it right, and you keep going for centuries. His compulsive giggle. Deaf cool, Mr. Guinea Pig. So, I am the wasp. I join the swarm. They're eddying around Treadle. He's bellowing, dancing around, slapping himself. He's fighting for his life. He has foam on his lips like a rabid dog. My fellow wasps are landing on his face, his fat neck, his waddles. But Treadle is swatting them before they sting. He's killed eight. His roars are taking on a tone of triumph. I can't let him win. His shirt is untucked. A button is loose. I spy a patch of skin. I arrow into the opening and land on the man's bare chest, very near his heart. I sting. I sting, sting, sting. His voice changes as if his tongue is turning stiff. His volume fades. He's wobbly on his pins. He totters backwards, falls, a groan, silence. It's done.
Maybe I'll just quit the room. Wow, is that prophetic? Uh, maybe not, but uh, a fantasy for sure. Wow, you, when did you write that? Uh, when there are news stories of him joking about a third term. Okay, ah. Oh. That put me over the edge. <laughs> Your imagination over the edge. Wow, it's funny. I, I never listened to podcasts or spoken word or anything. I'm just not non-electronic, pure, 100% paper in my life pretty much, but I can see the power of podcasts now or listening to, you know, a, a, what do you call it, or a spoken narrative. Well, the, the emotion gets into it, yeah. Wow, wow, okay. I, I'm, I hope we don't get bombed or something. I heard, gu <laughs> I heard gunfire or, or was yeah, firecrackers. That, that was just at the right time. Yeah, yeah that, that was... That was the secret that's service. That's cosmic surrealism. <laughs> there's, there's an argument for surrealism right there, like chance. The dictatorship of chance, they called it sometimes. That's one of their s clever surrealist phrases. Uh, I feel like, yeah, the, the universe is dancing with us at any given time, you know. Or at least, uh, I don't know how to dance. So if they're like me dancing, forget it. Well, but, it's, uh, you're maybe. dancing in your photographic sweep and in your verbal layering. Maybe. Oh, That's thanks. Right. Th thanks, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, let's see. It's hard to think after that fantasy story kind of hypnotized us. Um, Oh yeah, I'm supposed to be. I am supposed to be promoting this photo book, aren't I? Forgot why it's here. Um, <laughs> no, it's tra it's from all over the world. Okay. I, I again, I I didn't pick a photo. Andrew did, so blame it's got, blame him. It's got everybody <laughs> you'd want to see. Well, not everyone. I I keep. It doesn't have Nixon. I I keep, you know. I, I went through some strange boxes of photos. Was it Friday? When was Friday? Two days ago. And I, f I found a whole great box of photos that Stuart Swayze would have loved to have included in his, what's it called, desolation? A couple weeks. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so. But, you know, it, nothing is ever finished, really. Uh, I mean, you can just, con you can improve something until you're, Dead, I guess. It's that maybe, maybe not the story though. What'd you say, Marion? Oh yeah, even well, after people yeah. improve it for you. Yeah, what yeah. Vale meant to say. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, well, I that, that's why I don't trust the internet because I know how quickly things can be hacked and changed, and history becomes, I don't know, someone else's version. <clears throat> that's why I like paper. All the like Ballard, he was known for. If if he if he got a a new edition of a book, he would like a prankster. He'd change a few things just to see if anyone noticed, you know. And like nobody hardly just sat down and compared. Oh, the I don't know what was when was his first story, nineteen fifty six or some ancient time like that, with like a nineteen eighty two. You know, reprint by a totally different publisher. So, well, it's hard know. to resist when yeah. they do a new edition. You think, well, I want to make it a little better, but 
then you don't want to destroy the youthful, you know, the the heartfelt quality of it, you know. It's the you know, the skill of age versus the the heartfelt enthusiasm of youth. Well, I mean, you might have see how you could improve it, you know, just That's a few words. Yeah, yeah. I can see how you'd want to do that. Yeah. But then, of course, someone like me would say, did you really improve it? Well, that's the <laughs> thing, yeah. Yeah, publishing. I hope everyone leaves and does a zine, or if they if they haven't ever done a zine, please yeah. do one. And come up here and buy uh, some of Vail's books. Well, your own books are here for, for sing- signing, too. too. Also, yeah. <laughs> I know we're here to sign, right? Yeah. Three-word phrase. But um, I would I would rather have some more questions if there are any. Or okay, Andrew. Well, small question. Could you show us some of the photos from the book and tell us about them? I don't know if anyone can see like way the hell back. But um, I, I'll just. Uh-oh. I, I don't have favorites. It's like having ten children and calling one a favorite. Don't do that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't want to speculate. I, that wouldn't be great either to me. I mean, no, I don't have any favorite children. Uh, well, we we won't go there. I, I, I like this photo a lot. I, I, you know, I don't know if anyone ever takes what what I call flaneuring drives in Nowhereville, California, but this is this is this photo of this. Well, this is like Ballard before I knew him, like before I'd read Crash. This is like sort of an archetypal car crash overlooking Mendocino Coast and just found it and took the picture and there happened to be a bird in the air captured which was just pure luck and not art not cha- you know but i'm glad the bird was there some kind of a hum um poetic image perhaps symbol i mean oh god no it doesn't say it um I, I don't know when this photo... Let me think. It was, everything in my life is tied to a girlfriend. No, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. Sorry, Marion. <laughs> um, anyway, it was before I... It's actually... I'm sure it was taken before I ever heard of J.G. Ballard. But I felt... Maybe it's prophetic that I would discover Ballard. A lot of what you do is kind of prophetic, I think, in your life if you if you actually keep records. You know, you you have harbingers. If you can if you can connect the dots, like everything, all co- what's that terrible phrase? All coincidences are are just waiting for a coincidence is is what waiting for an explanation. Um, anyway, that's not right. But there is a there is what for an explanation, something like that. But we got to get better at this. <laughs> oh, not serendipical. If anything's typical, 
I would like to, I'd like to hope that nothing's typical, but you know, you, you, you're always trying to reinvent life, not, uh, although I like deja vu, I welcome deja vu in my life. It's so weird when it happens, and it can happen once in a while. Huh. Yeah, everyone I hope keeps diaries and all that, of course. But, um, okay, question back. Yeah, uh, did you ever think you'd be doing it this long with your life? Hell no. Life goes by. It's like snapping your fingers. Ask anyone. You cannot believe, you, you just, it's impossible. It's unfathomable how quickly life goes by. It's, it's, it, take my word for it, especially if you're, quote, having fun, I, I guess. Maybe even if you're not having fun, it goes by. <laughs> what? That's what they say. It's probably, it feels that way, doesn't it? You know, the more you're on the planet, the quicker time goes by. It, it only goes slowly when you're taking care of young children. Oh, no, I don't know about that. I don't know. It's I, only 1 o'clock, you know? <laughs> oh, 1 a.m. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know how you can make time. I want to know. Someone tell me how to make time go by slower. Yes. Like really, really slow. Oh, no, that, no, no. That's unacceptable. What? Reading? Oh. Isn't that a fire trap now, Reading? Wow, that's so horrific. I, I wouldn't go there for that reason. That I don't fire is not the way I want to leave the planet, but I better knock on wood in that because you know you get you you get what you don't want in life sometimes. As well as vice versa, maybe. So, um, oh, I, I, you know, everyone knows in this room already probably that I tried to put my, your, not just mine, because I think we're all connected. I know it's a crazy idea, but I think we're we are all one. Ha ha. And um, I tried to put your entire philosophy of life in only one sheet of paper. It got inspired because a million years ago I got accepted into Harvard and I, University and I went there and toured the campus. I was too chicken shit to go. I want that on record. But um, I, one of the libraries, I, I wanted to be a philosopher major, philosophy major, and one of, the, one of their several libraries had a whole room of philosophy books, and I looked around. I don't know. I don't know. Does everyone want it? They don't want They don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people already have it. I am positive. But anyway, I saw this whole room of philosophy books, and I said, oh, shit, I'm not going to be a philosophy major. I have to read every book in this room. Forget it. And then years later, I thought about that experience, and... and like a prankster asked, you know, I wonder if you can take the best of that room and put it on one sheet of paper and just give it away for free and, by, you know, bypass capitalism, whatever that means. And um, so here's the attempt, and 
Marion Wallace laid it out and made it much better because there there is a visual layout component to anything textile, <laughs> text-based. I, I think it... I'm a, I'm a fan of actually readable writing, large type and all that. <laughs> Perfect spelling so I don't get confused. What word did they really mean? I only heard one mispronunciation from Rudy, and now I already forgot what it was. But, you know, beware of that, because it can lead to misinterpretation. But, um, geez, where are all the millions of hands raised for questions? But maybe, I don't know. I, oh, yeah, everyone with the, everyone's now a photographer. I, I wrote that in the introduction to this book. You know, with the with the invention of the of the smartphone, or in my case, iPhone, in permanent, you know, hooked up to the internet, everyone's a photographer, and you know, but is there art? You know, who knows? Who can judge? But um, now there's no excuse for not. Oh, I don't own a Leica or whatever. You know, I didn't go to art school. Uh, <laughs> Well, that's what Ferlin Getty said, but he, he that's a bullshit, by the way, because he spent thousands of hours in his little painting studio at Hunter's Point, you know, thinking he was a painter. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not, I'm not. It's not me to judge the quality of his painting. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I think I. I don't know. I, I'm all in favor of everyone doing everything as much as possible. I mean, if you have the, you know, one of my little aphorisms is first technology, then culture. And I think techno technology is very important. And, and I'm always interested in knowing the latest advances and wondering, well, what art can you make with it? It's just a speculative question. And... Um, not that I'm going to do it. You might, but <laughs> other people in this room, but not myself. But still, um, I mean, we could get into a discussion of what is art. I, I always say that art is everything you do that's not for the profit motive. But then again, there are, great, there are artists I like who definitely do f take part in the profit motive. So it's, it's just very tricky being in you know being an artist or being creative or whatever being multifunctionally creative in the age of hypercapitalism some people say we're in the age of postcapitalism i don't think so i don't think we'll ever i think jejek nailed it when he said he, he he said this here at city lights i think he said you can imagine the apocalypse, you can imagine the end of the world, but you can't imagine the end of capitalism. <laughs> and I, I'm humble enough to agree with that. I've tried, you know, but, but I, I've, I've participated unwillingly in commune situations a million years ago, and there's always, there's always a power grab in the making, always. There's always bad... Me too kind of stuff happening. I mean, so now I think everyone should just, I don't know, try to spend as much time by themselves as possible. No, I know. <laughs> I, I, I know what Groucho Marx, this is one of my mentors, not Carl so much, when he said two key things, and I remember reading this a million years ago, and 
and I mean a million years, million and a half years ago, um, I wouldn't join any group that would have me as a member. That's key. And then two, whatever it is, I'm against it. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, I don't mean that either. I don't, I'm not going to be a judge. I don't want to judge people, personally. I, or I'd, I'd rather try not to judge people. I mean, whether I do in, in real life or not is another matter. That's the secret of your approach. Yeah, Sailor Sid. <laughs> Sailor Sid. <laughs> yeah, put as much metal on your body as you can. And, and get, don't forget get photographed. Yeah. <laughs> and don't forget what? Your genitals. Oh, 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 please. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. Okay. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.